Well, this morning we are continuing uh, in our series in the Beatitudes, uh, eight bold, beautiful statements that Jesus makes as the prologue to the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We're on the sixth Beatitude this morning. Uh, The Beatitudes are blessed are statements. Blessed are, blessed are. We've said blessed means deeply happy, approved of by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. This morning, we're going to look at the six Beatitudes. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as I read God's Word to us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word to us. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would speak by your spirit to our spirits, that our minds would be illumined, our hearts stirred, and our lives transformed because the living God has breathed life into us by being with us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Would you speak, Jesus, to us, your people? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I have a little bit of a confession. Uh, If you didn't know this, most of you don't, I'm a little bit of a crier. I cry. Uh, I've realized this, the older I get, the more I cry. And honestly, the older I get, uh, the more I'm okay with it. I'm I'm just, I'm secure. That's who I am. Uh, And you know what gets me every time? The videos of mom or dad returning from deployment in in the military where they're either hiding like in a box wrapped as a gift or catcher at a baseball game or or they just surprise, like kind of come out of nowhere from behind a wall, their children who had no idea that mom or dad whom they've been missing for months and years, whom they've not seen, would all of a sudden appear. The reaction gets me every time. The child is overwhelmed. The child loses it. Mom, Dad, they're here. And it leads to this huge embrace, this lost in the arms kind of embrace. And then there's tears of joy and relief that they're finally back where they've longed to be. In the arms and presence of the one who loves them and the one that they love. My hope for us this morning is that we will all leave here knowing and experiencing and resting in the arms and in the presence of the God who loves us with an eternal love and that our hearts would well up with love for him. And the good news is that our God's not deployed, coming back in a few years. He's not going to surprise us. He's not in hiding. He is ready, waiting, and willing for us to see him and to enjoy his presence. Now, it could seem that this sixth beatitude is addressing uh, the issue of our eyes, that we've got an eye problem. 
uh, our, we've got a seeing problem when it comes to our relationship with God, but Jesus is telling us that our inability to see God and to enjoy God is not an eye problem, but it's a heart problem. So let me start by talking about the centrality of the heart. This is my first point. The centrality of the heart. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place in his presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. A pure heart. Now we use this word heart today to refer to our emotions. Uh, but according to the Bible, the heart is not just the emotional center, it is the everything center. It is the command center uh, for our emotions, but it's also the command center of our intellect and of our will, of our actions. So heart in the scripture, it's the combination of our word for heart, our word for soul, and our word for mind. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Now the religious people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they were concerned with externals, purity according to the outside. They thought blessed are the people who study the scriptures, blessed are the people who do good deeds. Blessed are those whose outsides are clean and good. Not too dissimilar to some of the teachings we hear within the church today, other religions today, that blessed are those who have their acts together. Blessed are those who do the right things. Somewhat similar to our culture's self-help gurus and their teachings. Right? Blessed, we hear, deeply happy are those who have the right eating habits. Those who exercise properly, it's about the externals and all about our doing. Now, the outside and our doing can definitely and does impact the inside. But Jesus' main concern is for the heart. And Jesus teaches that the internal is what really impacts the external. He teaches this in Mark chapter 7, that nothing outside a person can defile a person. Since it enters not the heart, but the stomach. And what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. Similar to what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, that the heart is deceitful. Above all things, who can understand it? We have a heart problem. Reflect back with me on Genesis 1 through 2. The very beginning when God created the world. He created a world where beauty was on full display. Where everything was in perfect harmony. Where humanity knew and experienced God's love intimately. Without fear, without guilt, without shame. It was paradise. There was nothing wrong in the whole world. What led Adam and Eve to turn away from God? Their heart. Impure hearts. And Jesus is concerned about our hearts. We need to see that the heart can be a problem that hinders us from seeing God, but the heart is also the portal by which we can see God. So what does purity of heart mean if it's through this that we see and behold our God? This is my second point. What does it mean? Our first instinct is to think that it, it means our morality, our right and wrong. And it does mean morality, but it's, it's more than just 
that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's at least three things. It is being clean in our morality. But secondly, it's about speaking about depth of devotion. We're all in purity of heart. But third and most fundamental, it means singleness of purpose. Singleness of purpose. Danish philosopher, author Soren Kierkegaard said purity of heart is to will one thing. To will one thing. James in his epistle in the New Testament states this in a negative way, saying what purity of heart is not in James 4 verse 8. James writes, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lacking purity of heart is a double-mindedness. It's being divided, duplicitous, hypocritical. The psalmist states this in a positive way in Psalm 86 verse 11. He writes, unite my heart that I might fear your name. Unite my heart. Let me will one thing. That's what this beatitude is about, a unified heart. Our thoughts, our emotions, our actions in one accord. There's no division, no deceit, no hypocrisy. One scholar said pure in heart are those that are single-minded, free from the tyranny of the divided self. I love that, the tyranny of the divided self. Every one of us knows that all too well, the divided self. The best illustration, this is an extreme illustration that I can think of, is from the TV show Dexter. Uh, this is not an endorsement for everybody to go watch Dexter. But Dexter is a blood splatter analyst for the Miami Police Department. He tracks down criminals. But Dexter is also a serial killer. Now, he kills bad people, other serial killers, so it's kind of a little bit of redemption. But from an early age, his father has taught him how to use this evil desire by going after bad people. So I've always thought Dexter is a great image of the divided self, the two selves, the good cop and the bad serial killer, good urges and bad urges. He says in season one, I'm Dexter, and I don't know what I am. I just know there's something dark in me. I hide it. I certainly don't talk about it, but it's there always, this dark passenger. And when he's driving, I feel alive, half sick with the thrill, complete wrongness. Dexter is divided. Good desires, loving desires, and then he has this dark passenger. Dark desires, dark urges. We all live with the tyranny of the divided self. And the question, I, think, I don't think I have to convince you that we live that way and that we wrestle with that. I think the better question is why do we have divided selves? Why do we act one way here and then act another way over here? Why do we think one way here and think another way over here? Why do we feel one way here and feel another way over here? There's two reasons we have this divided self. That we have disordered loves and we live busy, hurried lives. Disordered loves is the first reason. I think addressing these will help us to have a unified, pure heart. We all have disordered loves. We have competing loves. I love my kids, and I love college football. So when Auburn football is on in a few months, and they're kicking off against Oregon on August 31st, and my kids are screaming, Dad, come outside and let's play, I will feel very divided. I want to play with my kids. I love them, but I want to watch the football game. Right? 
I love exercise, and I love pizza. Do I eat healthy after exercising and love the feeling of being healthy, or do I eat some pizza and love it going down my mouth and into my stomach? Competing loves. As Christians, we are to love God and to love others. It's the love of God, but when we love other things more than we love God, we become divided. We love God and we love money. We love God and we love comfort. We love God and we love our external religious kind of display of duties. We love God and we love our addictions. A wrong ordering of our loves is what leads us to the tyranny of the divided self. One of my best friends told me how he defined purity of heart. He defined it this way. Loving the right things in the right order to the right degree because you love God above all. Therefore, you make the right choices. I think that's really good. The divided self is an issue of our disordered loves. The divided self is also an issue of us being too busy, always in a hurry. This beatitude is about our interior life. It's about our heart and how it impacts our relationship with God. And the reality is that the majority of us do not take the time to address our interior because we're so busy living lives that are hurried from one thing to the next, desiring to be productive and efficient, but it makes us distracted and divided. Busy's almost become applauded as a response to the question, how are you doing? I've been busy. As if that's a badge of honor in our culture, like, like it wins us points because we're getting things done. My friend Stephen Smith said, we are a culture that lives in fifth gear. From job to families to activities to kids' activities to hobbies to acts of service, we're always going, always in a hurry. We've stripped first in gear. They don't even exist. We think living in third gear is for losers. We jump over fourth gear and live in fifth because we want to get things done in a hurry, and it's killing our hearts. I've referred to the Chinese character of busyness before. The Chinese character for busyness is the two words put together, heart and killing. Busyness kills the heart. We have to slow down. We have to take the time to reflect on our own disordered loves and what's getting in the way of us experiencing and seeing and knowing God. Have you ever been riding with someone in their car and they're driving and and all of a sudden you notice how dirty their windshield is? You're like, people can't even clean their windshield? Mud, bug splattering, bird poop. How can they see while driving? Disordered loves, competing desires that pull us away from God. Things like the love of success or the love of money, the love of comfort, the love of self, which is pride and self-righteousness. These things are the mud and bug splattering and bird poop on the window of our hearts, on the window of our souls. And most of us continue to live life driving around from one place to the next, unable to see out of the windshield. And we don't have time to stop. We don't have time to clean it off because we're busy. We are getting things done. Purity of heart is single-mindedness, and it is essential for us to see and experience God. Single-mindedness breeds intimacy with God. I mean, think about your own relationships. 
You remember that time when you were talking to someone, they're talking to you, but they're kind of looking past you? Or they're looking around while talking to you, or they pull out their phone while talking with you? This blocks intimacy. This person is divided as they're trying to be with you. When Rachel and I go out for dinner, uh, when we get to and we get a babysitter, we're both fully present and we're able to kind of put distractions away, don't pull out our iPhones, busyness, kind of we've slowed ourselves down. That's what breeds intimacy in a relationship. Purity of heart, single-mindedness, united heart is what we need so that we might see and know and experience God. It is the greatest reason for being pure in heart. The reward of seeing God. This is my third point. There's no greater thing than seeing God. Psalm 84, Psalmist writes, One thing I ask, that I might behold God, that I might dwell with God. It is the one thing, the ultimate longing of the heart is to see and be with God. Every one of us I know here wants to feel alive. We all want to feel alive as we live life. It's why some people climb Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest. It's a thrill. Or go skydiving. Or drink a fifth of bourbon. Or spend money on new things. Or go on that next great vacation. We all want to feel alive. But there is no greater thrill, no greater comfort, no greater satisfaction than being in the presence of God. He is the one who loves us so much that he gave his only son for us. Jesus loves us so much that he laid down his life on the cross for us. The Spirit of God loves us so much that he is relentless in his pursuit to call us back so that we might rest in the loving arms of our God. There's no greater thing than seeing and being with God. Helen Keller was asked, is it terrible terrible to be blind? And she responded, it's better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Purity of heart, it allows us to see God. And we can see God now and we will see him in the future. We can see God right now. This offer of intimacy with him is offered right now. I know there are people here who would say they've never seen God, never experienced the love of God in Jesus. Perhaps today is the day that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might see and behold him. And this offer of seeing and knowing God is not one and done. It's an offer of intimacy that is continuous, meaning we daily can grow Uh, in our experience in knowing and seeing God. Well, how do we see God? The first way is through the Bible. We see God and know God and experience God through the Scriptures. The Bible is His revelation of Himself to His people. From Genesis to Revelation is God unfolding the beauty of who He is. And so God uses the Bible to draw us into relationship, into intimacy, not just to teach us some truths, but to transform us as we dwell in his presence. The second way we see God now is through creation. David in Psalm 29 is watching a thunderstorm. And as he watches a thunderstorm, he writes Psalm 29 verse 3. 
The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. David doesn't just see a thunderstorm. He sees the God of glory who thunders. God's great cathedral of creation is a place for us to behold and see him. Poet and farmer Wendell Berry was looking at a forest of trees, and he described them as the tall timber choir that sings praises to our God. A forest of trees, a sunset, a mountain, a painting, a song, a person's face. God uses them all to draw us to see him and to experience him. The third way we see him right now is in events and circumstances of our life. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, God works all things together for our good and for his glory. So events and circumstances of joy and happiness, the birth of a child, a business deal closing, getting into grad school, making a new friend, God is at work. But events and circumstances of sadness and pain, God's also at work. It could be the loss of a child, a breakup, the death of a loved one. We may not understand what's happening, but we know God is at work. Uh, Rachel and I were on a spiritual retreat last week, five days, and it was unbelievable. It was so good. And and on the retreat was a 65-year-old woman who had a year ago lost her husband to ALS. It was a six-year battle with ALS, and he had died a year ago. And she shared one night in a small group that I was in with her. We were reading the story about Jesus taking his disciples into desolate places. And the question she said that God was asking her is, will you see this desolate place that you're in as a gift or as a curse? Will you see this desolate place as a place where Jesus wants to be with you? He wants you to know him and experience him. And I thought, what a profound question. Do we see God's invitation? to be with him and to know him, yes, in events that are joyful, but also in events that are painful and sad. He wants us to be with him and to see him and to know him. We can see him right now, and we will see him in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, we now see God dimly as in a mirror, and most of the times our mirrors are muddy, but one day, someday, we will behold our God face to face. And what a day that will be when we no longer are divided, when our our loves are no longer disordered, but we are in the presence of our God fully. Until that day, let me encourage you first to slow down. Let me encourage myself to slow down. Stop living in fifth gear. Stop living lives so hurried so that you can examine your life, so that you can Examine what are the things competing for your heart. Slowing down will allow you to feel, and I I get it, most of us would rather not feel, so we numb ourselves with our busyness and our hurry. It'll allow us to feel what's going on inside. It'll allow us to hear the competing voices that happen because we live with this tyranny of the divided self. It'll also allow us to hear God's voice. And then it'll help us to understand what blinds us from experiencing God's love. So slow down. Second thing is to confess these things. Get to a place of honesty and confession. Because honesty and confession, it is the squeegee that wipes away the mud and the bug splatter and the bird poop. 
from the window of our heart. Confession is the, ah, we can see. We can behold. God's at work. He's at work revealing himself in the scriptures. He's at work in the world around me and the beauty he's created. And he's at work in the events and circumstances of our lives. We can't make our hearts clean. You can't read enough. You can't pray enough. You can't serve enough. God makes it clean. God forgives us. And then he points us to Jesus and he declares, this is how much I love you. I love you so much that I gave my only son for you. And as he cleanses our hearts, he unites them and he orders our passions so that we can behold and see him. See, we're all like those children longing to be in mom and dad's arms when they return home. See, deep down there is nothing any of us wants more than to be in the arms of the one who loves us and the one in which we love. Hear me, it's not God who goes away from us. It is us who turn away from him. We are the ones prone to wonder. He is the one waiting, ready for us to return and be embraced in his arms of love. One of the guys that taught us in a session last week on our retreat told a story about him and his son. And he was in his mid-30s at this time, and uh, he was on staff with Young Life. Uh, in vocational ministry, by the way, it can be as busy as many other professions, but in ministry, we can baptize our busyness because we're doing it for Jesus, right? Convicting. Uh, and he said he had been running and gunning to get ready for this camp that he was going to be at and lead. He was the director of the camp, and he knew it was going to be crazy. So on their road trip out to Colorado, anytime his two little kids wanted to stop, he stopped. He gave them whatever they wanted. They wanted ice cream, he'd give them some ice cream. If they wanted candy, he'd give them some candy. He knew he had to build up some chips because he was going to cash them in when they got to camp and he was going to be so crazy busy that he couldn't spend time with them. So they get to camp and it had been a few weeks and it was hectic. He's getting up before the kids. He's going to, ba- to bed after they go to bed. And he said weeks in, he was leading a team meeting and he sees something out of the corner of his eye kind of flashing back and forth in the room that they're in, and he realizes that it's his five-year-old son walking back and forth, kind of peeking into the doorway, back and forth. He said it took him a few moments to realize what was happening, and then he saw his son walk by one more time, and the dad made this motion. Come here. And it took his son a little bit to realize what his dad was saying, but then he got this big old smile on his face. And he took off running toward his dad, and he yelled out, Him wants me. Him wants me. God wants you. God wants you. And he loves you. Will you allow his love for you to slow you down, to reorder your love for him, to unite your heart so that you might see and know him? Now, and one day face to face. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would, deep down in the unbelief where we don't think you're a God who wants us, help us to believe how much you delight over us and love us and rejoice over us. Lord, we're about to come to this table 
that declares how much you love us, that you gave your son Jesus to be given over to death so that we might be brought into the family of God. Lord, I pray that we would know your love for us and that it would reorder, unite our hearts, that we might walk day by day seeing and knowing you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.